1: And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we have a really, really fascinating show for everyone tonight. If you're catching this show on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you can be notified about all our future interviews. We had some cool interviews coming down the line. So you definitely want to be uh, keeping up to date with that. Our topic for tonight is bigfoot my guest is joshua Cutchen, who wrote this amazing book that i highly recommend everyone get it's called where the footprints end high strangeness and the bigfoot phenomenon volume one in this book we are presented with evidence from eyewitnesses investigators and cryptozoologists worldwide that support the existence of some type of large creature that inhabits the wilderness. We also see Bigfoot in a different light, not only as a physical flesh and bones creature, but we also learn about some of the supernatural events that happen during Bigfoot sightings, like luminescent eyes or orbs of light. In Volume 1, the reader will take a deep dive into how Bigfoot and Bigfoot encounters seem to have connections to other phenomena like poltergeists, extraterrestrials, magic, fairies, even ghosts. But I think most importantly, the book questions some of the assumptions about what Bigfoot is and could be. This is one of those books that again reminds me what a strange and wonderful place the world we live in really is. As mentioned, my guest tonight is Joshua Kutchen, and let me tell you a little bit about him. I'll read from his bio. Joshua Kutchen has appeared on a wide variety of paranormal programs discussing his work, including Coast to Coast AM, Mysterious Universe, and The Grayling Report. He is the author of four books, 2015's A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch, which has also been translated into Spanish. 2016's The Brimstone Deceit, An In-Depth Examination of Supernatural Scents, Otherworldly Odors, and Monstrous Miasmas. 2018's Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions, and 2020's Where the Footprints and High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volumes 1 and 2, co-authored with Timothy Renner. Kutchen has been featured on the hit history channel television show Ancient Aliens and is a recurring roundtable guest on the Where Did the Road Go podcast. Joshua has been invited to speak at Georgia MUFON events the International 4 Organizations 2016 and 2019 Fort Fests, and 2019 and 2020 Strange Realities Conference. So here to talk about his book, Where the Footprints End, is Joshua Cutching. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. It's a treat for me to get a chance to uh, talk to you about your book, Where the Footprints End, Volume 1. I think people are going to be quite fascinated by what we're about to hear. So thank you for joining
0: us. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to it.
1: You opened your book with uh, an account by George Kowalczyk that occurred on October 25th, 1973, at the time when George was 22 years old. And this happened in a rural region outside of Uniontown in Fayette County, Pennsylvania. And I feel like this is a great way to start because. This is a great example of all the strange occurrences that seem to happen sometimes when people have uh, encounters with these Bigfoot creatures. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What happened to George back in October of 1973?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a it's a fantastic story. And I mean that both in terms of being great and also in terms of being you know, fantastical. Um, it comes from the archives of Sam Gordon, who is one of the people who really sort of Brought to everyone's attention the, the connection between Bigfoot and UFOs, but there was a uh, farm, uh, some farmland in Lafayette County, Pennsylvania, and there was a large uh, glowing orb that sort of descended uh, upon you know this, this, this hilltop where the farm was, and they could hear this loud whirring noise and these sounds of like babies crying or something. So they actually went up to investigate the owners of the property, um, they had some uh, guns, some rifles that were loaded with tracer bullets. And, you know, <laughs> they've got this big glowing ball. And from, you know, the of it, these slow figures are coming forward and they are, uh, big and they're shaggy. And every time they, uh, <laughs> they fire the tracer around, um, they, would sort of reach out to it. And I think they actually said that they hit these things. They were pretty sure because, you know, he's got a trace around, you can tell. And, uh, it sounded like somebody throwing something into water, like, boop, like a little plop of water every time they, they hit it. Um, and then all of a sudden the light just completely goes out and, uh, the things are still standing there and, you know, making these sounds like <laughs> crying babies. And, uh, eventually, you know, they, ran away. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, afterwards, Dan um, Gordon gets the call about this case and he arrives and uh, allegedly, according to police reports and whatnot, it was still bright enough at the UFO landing site that people, that he could like read a newspaper in the middle of the night there uh, for some time afterwards, later that evening. Um, Stan Gordon himself claims that he actually uh, saw the, uh, one of the primary witnesses collapse at the UFO site and then went back out there. And when he came to, he uh, had just, he apparently had this vision of, you know, the Grim Reaper and the end of the world and all this really apocalyptic imagery. Um, but, you know, some other things, you know, some other things sort of trailed behind the encounter. Not just that, but also, uh, you know, there were some batteries that were drained, um, you know, acrid smells, but uh, there was also some sort of if uh, memory serves some men in black style activity um, that was happening as well uh, there was an individual who about two weeks later came to the house to question them and said they were you know, it looked like they were in the Air Force um, but they warned him to not share his story and uh, they never appeared again <laughs> this is after they offered to hypnotize him for whatever reason um, it might be the strangest big case but it's definitely one of the uh, Dozens that are out there. I'll probably say hundreds actually that are
1: out there. It was definitely a a great way to start your book because it's almost like if you have a checklist of weird things to happen, this case seems to have like ticked all the boxes. Oh,
0: absolutely,
1: yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, apparently uh, George saw some weird lights in the sky and obviously he sees these Bigfoot type creatures. I believe at one point he. Even begins to act possessed in some way, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was, that was when he sort of collapsed to the ground and he said that he saw this, um, this apocalyptic vision. But he also claimed to have had other visions as well afterwards. Um, part of that precognition, he had uh, you know, visions of an airplane crash. He claimed to have seen a ghost of a dead relative as well. Just, just all around pretty wild.
1: Now, what's interesting when he was visited by these two men. He was also hypnotized, which is, I mean, it's kind of strange for the Air Force and, and a random guy in a suit to show up to your house and, and hypnotize you. But apparently they also showed him photos of uh, UFOs and Bigfoots. In your research, do you get the vibe that the government, it, it's kind of hip to what's going on and they're just really not talking about it? Well,
0: I seem to be pretty skeptical of, of how much the government actually knows. You know, I mean, I... I think that the government definitely has access to better and more data points regarding UFOs, Bigfoot, things like that. But I I really do think that these phenomena are so strange that they really don't have a good grasp on it. Because I am now in the camp that (laughs) that UFOs are not aliens and that Bigfoot is not a giant monkey. I think they're a lot stranger having to do with the way that, like, literally reality works. Or that, you know, I I hesitate to say maybe even having a spiritual component. Now, as far as those individuals, being aligned with the Air Force, you know, he, he saw them in what he thought were Air Force blues, um, you know, hypnotizing people is not exactly Air Force protocol, at least not publicly. <laughs> They're talking to witnesses. But, you know, it's interesting, you look at these phenomena, um, and they do sort of have these uh, I guess uh, gatekeeper figures that sort of show up. So you know, the men in black in the UFO phenomenon, a lot of people have thought, they might be some sort of government organization, but oftentimes they look just a little bit off, and they behave just a little bit strangely. They'll talk about needing to go recharge, or they won't know how to read certain social cues, or even, you know, one famous example, one of the men in black that approached a UFO witness uh, tried to drink a cup of yellow <laughs> instead of using the spoon that he was given. So they sort of seem to be a little bit, they seem to have more in common with the UFOs than, than they do government. And similarly in Bigfoot lore, these two apparent Air Force officers, quote-unquote notwithstanding, um, you do have these two other figures that it's, been, it's come out recently, sort of fulfill the same role as the men in black do with UFO reports. Generally, a, uh, two individuals one who's shorter and very uh, sort of straight laced in a black suit, almost dressed like a men in black, suit, except not quite as outdated as they tend to be. And another individual, sometimes wearing uh, flannel or just sort of like a big, tall, really tall biker dude with a big beard that some people have said the interesting name is there. And people, you know, will say, oh, these are government agents who are following around and harassing Bigfoot witnesses. And that may be the case, but some of the stories that you read just sound really strange. It sounds almost, again, like these gatekeeper figures are part of the phenomena itself rather than part of the government. Um, a good example of that is one individual who was in the middle of these Bigfoot setting with a police officer, if I recall, was warned to not intervene by these figures. And then, sure enough, out on the beach, the police officer runs into one of these people and he you know, pulls his gun and he's aiming at it and he just can't bring himself to pull the trigger. And the creature runs off and he turns around and there's this tall, you know, biker dude who, <laughs> you know, alluded that he was with the government. He looks at him and says, couldn't pull the trigger, could you? Good man. It's Like, what is, like... Is he following him around, or is he, again, you know, part of this phenomenon, part of the strangeness of the phenomenon? So, you know, does the government know something about Bigfoot? I, I don't know. If is, the stranger Bigfoot gets, the less likely, I think, that, uh, that the government knows about it. Now, if Bigfoot is something, you know, like a mundane and blood primate or some sort of, you know, branch of, of the human uh, evolutionary tree, then... I think it's entirely likely that he would have, have more knowledge of it. So you know, a lot of the things we talk about in the book, in my opinion, sort of lean away from that
1: answer. That is really interesting. I, I was not familiar with that. Now, the name of your book is Where the Footprints End. And um, in your book, you have a story that also happened in Pennsylvania that really kind of exemplifies the title of your book. And that's the story of the Hillsmeyer family. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to that family on January 27th, of uh, 1978?
0: So, this is a property where something upset the Hildmeyer family of dogs. And the German Shepherds were really upset because there was something out in the back field. Um, the next morning, uh, Alan Hildmeyer and his sons found these three toed footprints um, that were uh, in sort of the back uh, field. Each was about 16 inches long and six inches wide, and uh, seemed to leave deep enough impressions to indicate that they were dealing with something quite heavy. The stride was about five feet uh, from footprint to footprint, even though sometimes it went up hills, and it was about 2,000 tracks, and uh, interestingly enough, they ended right in the middle of the field. Um And, of course, the Hillsmire father um, thought that this meant that there was a Bigfoot that was backtracking in its own steps, which I don't know how it ever gets out of those steps once it backtracks over those 2000 footprints. But uh, this is something that you will um, run into time and again uh, in Bigfoot folklore. uh, Bigfoot folklore, sorry, Bigfoot accounts. An account for people looking for Bigfoot is that you'll reach the end of this trackway, and it'll be in the middle of a gigantic field and it'll just stop. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, they could jump really high or really far <laughs> uh, to a tree or to some sort of other harder ground where it wouldn't leave footprints. But, you know, I think the, the largest recorded jumps in the animal kingdom are 50 feet vertical and horizontal um, for species of antelope and snow leopards. And sometimes these footprints in the fields that are surrounded by much, much, much wider areas of untouched ground than 50 feet. So the implication is that these things just sort of dematerialize, they vanish. Um, Or they walk backwards, which just, I mean, maybe, but it just sounds so silly on its face, you know. Um, Some other people suggest that they brush their tracks out, uh, you know, with a branch or something. Which yeah, okay, but if we're saying that because we, we insist that Bigfoot is an ape, that doesn't seem like very ape like behavior. It's not out of the question, but it's just it's just a little bit too elaborate of an explanation. Um whereas I just sit here and I say it disappeared. And I don't know what that means and I'm not gonna tell you what it means because I don't know what it means. But the fact of the matter is it's just the point it disappeared. So that was the idea for the for the title of the book because the best evidence that we do have uh, for Bigfoot are these footprints. And some of them are magnificent and they do seem to indicate that we're dealing with a primate. But um, they are the best evidence that we have and yet they have always led us to a certain point. So the footprints in that sense have ended not only in terms of the tracks but in terms of what they can tell us. We have to go beyond where the footprints end to uh, folklore instead of science to see if maybe we can gain some additional insight. And, uh, you know, one final statement on the whole footprint thing. Um, these footprints, everything about them really does often, not always, because there's some strange anomalies like different toes and whatnot. But a lot of what these footprints will tell you um, seems to point to a large undiscovered ape. And people will say, well, that may mean must mean that it's large undiscovered ape. But at the same time, you know, ghostly footprints, ghost slam doors, you know, it seems like non-physical things Uh, can interact with their physical environment. It seems like it's
1: just an inspiration on that that concept. One question that I wanted to ask real quick in regards to footprints, and and this is mentioned in the Hillsmeyer case, was that at least I'm pretty familiar with the the photographs of these, uh, you know, five-toed, almost human-like footprints. But in the case of the footprints that the Hillsmeyer family found, these tracks were made of uh, three toes. And... It makes me wonder: I, uh, Are there uh, different species of these creatures? Have you found that a certain type of phenomena corresponds to these three-toed tracks, as opposed to like the five-toed tracks?
0: Some people have suggested in the past that uh, three-toed and four-toed, and even <laughs> even two-toed, if you can believe it, tracks um, tend to correspond to strange or bigfoot reports. But that really doesn't seem to hold up. There are plenty of reports that. Are strange with uh, that has five toed tracks left behind, and plenty of reports that aren't strange in any other respect than having odd number toes left behind. Um, it's possible that we could be looking at a different species, but three toes is, is a, a very distant departure from what we would expect from private anatomy. Um, there are, I believe, a species of Gibbon that has uh, one of its digits fused, but that's about it. And so you've got, you know, four <laughs> four instead of three. Um, some people will say, "Oh, it's inbreeding," or "Oh, it's injured," but these footprints tend to manifest identically, symmetrically. In other words, the deformity would have to manifest identically on both feet to produce some of these trackways. And you know, what's more, if you look at these footprints, they don't look like primate feet that are deformed. They look like almost like giant chicken feet or something, you know, with an elongated heel and these you know, three equally sized toes to splayed out in front. So it seems like something a good deal different than uh, the basic human or traditional bigfoot
1: i wanted to ask you something because in my limited scope of uh understanding of, of the bigfoot phenomena i always felt like most of the sightings happened uh on the west coast or at least on the on the west part of the country you know in like the redwoods area and things like that washington and I was really surprised reading your book that there seems to be quite a lot, and I mean, even that seems like an understatement, but there seems to be, there seems to have been quite a lot of sightings in the Pennsylvania area. Have you yourself had any encounters with this creature?
0: So my, my co-author is actually the one who is, who is local in that area, Timothy Renner, but I want to say maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, to circle back around to what you initially said, the Bigfoot's been seen in Going assumption is big, that Bigfoot has been seen in all forty nine of fifty states, with the exception of, of Hawaii, rather. But um, Tim and I found an account of a wild man in Hawaii that sounds very much like a Bigfoot account. You could find you know stories of big hairy giants in Hawaii too. So yeah, pretty much all fifty states, Canada, <laughs> South America, Europe, <laughs> Africa, Australia—they they all have their own versions of, of basically, the wild man, of the big tall hairy. Um, Pennsylvania is a huge hotspot. You know, there was one point where people um, like Jerome Clark used to say that, you know, well, the weirdest Bigfoot stories tend to happen on the East Coast. On the West Coast, they seem like a big ape, and then the farther you drift east, the farther farther you get into the, uh, quote-unquote, gobble of the universe, which is what he called it. Um, but in truth, you know, weird Bigfoot stories happen on the West Coast too, but a lot of Bigfoot stories come out of Pennsylvania. Like, it's easily got to be Bigfoot sightings, and um, Tim has recorded a uh, bunch of different encounters, and he's had a lot of stuff that's highly suggestive with Bigfoot activity, you know, sort of things that the uh, the BFRO, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, uh, would call Class B reports, where you have, like, knocks and strange sounds and vocalizations and strange smells and footprints and things thrown at you, like, kind of all of that. I, on the other hand, <laughs> um, Kind of feel like a paranormal kryptonite. Um, I, I just don't have a ton of stuff that uh, that happens to me. However, having said that, I did go out to uh, one of Tim's research areas called uh, Site Seven, where he sees a lot of lights and it's had a lot of sort of activity um, that seems to be a lot like Bigfoot big activity. Not only that, but also you know what would traditionally be called ghost lights, which are orbs of light. Which do seem to have some sort of connection to the big phenomenon we talked about in uh, volume two, is where we end up into this um, But uh, I did go out 10 to site seven, and uh, we stopped. And the only thing that happened to me <laughs> um, was uh, this: as soon as we got out of the car, uh, there was something that was very unhappy with us being there, and it snorted and huffed a couple of times. Didn't sound like a white tail because I've heard that. And then it walked away through the leaf litter. You could hear it walking away. This was at night. You could hear it walking away. And it definitely sounded like a two-foot shovel. Um, yeah, you know, if that was foot I don't know. More compelling to me was um, an experience that I had actually on my honeymoon uh, down here in Georgia, where I was in the Georgia mountains. And we had uh, rented a cabin that was up an extremely steep, uh, rather long driveway. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, less than accessible somebody wanted to pull a prank and I was uh, on the deck the night before we left and I was, <laughs> I was vocalizing, uh, across the valley, making big foot sounds, just being a, you know, complete jerk. And the next morning I woke up and, uh, we started loading up the car and my wife comes to me and says, okay, hey, why did you do that? I said, what are you talking about? And she says, the rock. And I said, what, what rock? And, uh, I go out uh, to the driveway and behind, uh, that one of the rear wheels of my car is this big rock that someone had put there on the size of about a basketball. Um and I couldn't find where it had fallen from but that I'd rolled down the hill. It would have been, you know, covered in red Georgia clay, which is not this is a pretty, you know, <laughs> clean rock so to Couldn't find anywhere that it had come from. Um and I don't think that it really would have been anybody playing a prank because again to so, to climb that, that driveway, um on the chance that somebody might notice this as a prank, um, I think you would either make a more obvious prank or you would just uh, not do it at all. So that's that's the extent of my Bigfoot experience, unfortunately. Well,
1: that is still pretty strange. I mean, uh, uh, that's one one way to uh, to spend your honeymoon is you know with a bit of mystery. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> right, I should I should have known that right.
1: <laughs> now. Seems like rocks play a a big role in a lot of uh, Bigfoot encounters. And uh, when I was preparing for this interview, I was uh, really surprised to find that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Bigfoot is not limited to the continental U.S. It seems to be like a worldwide uh, phenomenon. And I was reading that during the Vietnam War, both sides of of the battle, U.S. soldiers and the Viet Cong, they were reporting sightings of of some strange uh, large uh, creature that when they describe it, it sounded like Bigfoot. Obviously, a lot of the the fighting occurred in the deep jungles in Vietnam, and they dubbed these creatures rock apes because they had a a habit of throwing rocks. I know in your book, you talk quite a, a length about this uh, rock throwing that occurs. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: If you look at, again, I mentioned, you know, the BFRO has these Class B reports. Um, Things like, uh, you know, knocking on trees, um, on smells, localization, footprints, And, yes, throwing rocks. Um, You know, if you take a lot of those Class B reports, which are where people experience all these things but don't actually see a big, hairy creature, you take that exact same suite of uh, activity and you put it in the house, it's exactly uh, one-to-one correspondence with poltergeist phenomena. And one of the things um, that is very common in poltergeist phenomena, and actually common in fairy folklore, and you'll read this in a lot of the, world, the old European witchcraft trials, are uh, what's called lithoboly, or throwing a rock, so the appearance of rocks. In uh, you know, in poltergeist cases, they'll drift down from the ceiling and oftentimes they'll be warm to the touch. There's actually some like, interesting thermal footage that's been captured in some of these reports in poltergeist cases where you can actually see, like, the heat on the rock dissipate after it lands. Um, so why this is interesting with Bigfoot is that, again, you know, these stories of people out in the woods, and they get rocks thrown at them. you know, places where it shouldn't be a person, they can't see a person. And they assume it's Bigfoot because they're in the woods, but if they were in a, again inside a house, they would say it was a poltergeist. This is really evident, however, in this sort of overlap with the uh, the Minerva monster case in 1978 in Minerva, Ohio. The Caton family was uh, sort of having a lot of trouble with Bigfoot, and there was a lot of strange Bigfoot activity. Not just Bigfoot activity, but strange Bigfoot activity um, that was happening around their house. Um, And the Bigfoot apparently would walk a ridge line behind their house and would throw rocks. Anything from the size of a pea to the size of a, like a baseball um, onto uh, a, a, a building, um, and uh, the uh, the boys that were there uh, living in the house at the time um, would see a figure walking along the ridgeline, and they would uh, you know assume that that's where the rock would be drawn from. So what they did is they started marking rocks with an X on uh, on the rock with a marker. And they, in one instance, they threw it up there, uh, up to the where they thought the Bigfoot was, even though they didn't see it in this case. And it uh, got tossed back to them. Same rock, it was an X on it, but it was warm to the touch. Now, you know, the flesh and blood assumption is that, you know, the Bigfoot was maybe holding the rock, and that's why it got warm, but it's important to note that you have these poltergeist cases, uh, a lot of which have a lot of similarities with Bigfoot activity that also feature these warm rocks being found.
1: It's funny that, uh, yeah, you mentioned that, because one of my questions was uh, about that incident, about throwing rocks and being warm to the touch.
0: The, the reason that I find that really interesting, and, you know, people might sort of be wondering, why are you talking about poltergeist and Bigfoot? Um, you know, there is a significant overlap, not only in the types of things that happen, um, but uh, also actual poltergeist phenomena alongside actual Bigfoot phenomena. There was incident in, uh, in Australia where uh, a family had some property that was plagued with yowie sightings, which is an Australian version of Bigfoot. And they actually did have straight up poltergeist phenomena in their home around the same time that they were seeing a Bigfoot outside the home. Um, you know, you, you have these wood knocks that are so often attributed to Bigfoot that uh, you know people say, "Oh, it's a Bigfoot with you know hitting a stick on a tree, and that's how they communicate to one another," but Again, knocks and raps inside the house were a sign of poltergeist and were also a sign of spirit communication and, you know, the seances of the spiritualist tradition. Uh, Those was the times you'd see the sort of poltergeist activity where things were moved on their own. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, there were some seances, um, uh, you know, in, in, in centuries past where people uh, claimed to actually see, uh, you know, straight up uh, Bigfoot <laughs> during the seances. So people would be having these spiritual seances to contact dead loved ones or whatever. Um, but they would either, you know, they'd see these hairy hands that would appear or in one instance from the 1950s, Stan Gooch, who was this uh, paranormal author, saw what he said was either, you know, a caveman dressed in, in, in furs or actually a, a big furry hairy man. Similarly, in uh, the earlier, a couple years earlier, the 20, early 20th century, Frederick Klisky was a, another medium uh, I believe, in Europe, who materialized this big, scary ape. Um, so there's a significant overlap in poltergeist and Bigfoot cases. Um, and, you know, I just don't know what to make of it, other than to say that there seems to be some sort of uh, some sort of connection there.
1: Going down the uh, this path of uh, poltergeist-like activity, there's another aspect to this that you mentioned, which is the disembodied voices. And in the Bigfoot community, there's some very famous recordings that you mention in your book called The Sierra Sounds that were recorded by uh, Ron Moorhead and Alan Barry. If anybody hasn't listened to those, I definitely recommend to grab some headphones and listen to those because it's, it's some really impressive stuff. One thing I wanted to mention is that when, when you mention wood knocks, we're not just talking about two small sticks being hit against each other when i was listening to the sierra sounds this sounds like it's a pretty big chunk of tree being slammed down so whoever is doing this sound uh, definitely is very strong and they sound quite intimidating but i wanted to ask about the sierra sounds um it looks like a, a navy cryptolinguistic. Listen to this thing, and he said that it sounds like a like a language, like they're communicating.
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, So the wood knocks that you're talking about. I think the the best description of the wood knocks that I've heard is that uh, it sounds like someone taking a Louisville slugger and like hitting hitting a tree, which is like the perfect uh, the perfect description. And yeah, so it's it's pretty intense. Um. There was a crypto linguist named Scott Nelson who said that there were morphine, phonemes, and syntax, uh, which all sounded like, you know, the aspects of, of language, meaning that we can't say what it is, but it certainly has the cadence and a lot of the structural similarities that you would expect from a uh, from an actual language. Um, you know, there was some subsequent, some subsequent analysis of uh, the... Sounds by uh, some researchers who specialize in vocal cords um, and, you know, how sort of basically we're able to postulate a correspondence between the height of an individual or the size of an individual and uh, their vocal apparatus. And uh, according to uh, these researchers, uh, whatever made these sounds um, would probably have to be between six, four, and eight. As <laughs> terms of the height. Um, as far as uh, you know, Moorhead uh, himself and, and Barry, I, I have a lot of faith in those researchers. Um, they seem, even though I don't, to, even know I don't agree with everything they say, uh, I, I certainly think that they're honest and earnest in what they're talking about. So, yeah, um, I don't know what to make of those recordings, but they definitely sound uh, like a language, and it, it's creepy. It's, it's very confronting when you hear it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine being out there in the woods and listening to that uh, in the middle of the night, not really knowing where or who's making those sounds. Speaking of being out in the woods, there's an interesting phenomenon that seems to happen uh, right before a Bigfoot sighting. And um, a friend of mine told me a story a a few years ago when they were driving up to Oregon and they stopped by the Redwoods uh, at night. And I believe it wasn't that late. It must have been around 10 p.m. And they uh, had an encounter with a ranger and this woman. She was just kind of like asking them like, you know, where they were headed and all that. And one of the guys in the group then asked her, what kind of animals do you see, you know, this late at night out here? And the the ranger replied that, you know, the usual like deer, bear, you know, she went down the list. And then the last thing on, on her list was Bigfoot. So the ranger drives away and uh, they're just kind of pulled off to the side of the road smoking a cigarette when uh, all of a sudden uh, my friend says that this overwhelming silence rolled in and one of the things that caught his attention was that it was a full moon that night and animals are not very quiet during a full moon. He says that at that moment he, he just felt this fear he had never felt before. And they all kind of quickly finished just smoking their cigarettes and got back in the car and and kept on driving. And it seems that this is something that happens a lot of times right before a Bigfoot sighting. You uh, call this the the Oz effect in the book. And you also make a good point that, sure, a lot of animals will become silent if they sense that there's a predator nearby. But you also mentioned that this doesn't account for airplane sounds or other sounds like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, This is is one of my favorite things to talk about. um, The Oz effect uh, was coined by British ufologist Jenny Randall. And she said that it was almost as if um, people who were experiencing UFO encounters would notice just beforehand, that all the sound would stop. And by which she meant uh, ambient sounds as well, not just the sound of animals, but there was no wind, no airplanes, no, you know, no trees rustling, nothing. Um, and then they would see the UFO, and one of the ideas that she, po- she sort of threw out there was that maybe it was some sort of pocket reality that was forming around the witnesses. Um, in The Encounter's this does and doesn't happen to varying degrees. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you'll have animals fall silent, which, you know, would be completely consistent with them sensing a predator around. I'm sure people have been walking outside and silenced crickets themselves. Uh, but sometimes, yeah, there are these other uh, eerie unnatural silences. Um, there's an example of an individual in 1967 who was basically, uh, he was shooting this preserve named Schiller Woods, uh, in Chicago, Illinois, and he had this very harrowing encounter where he ran into a Bigfoot, but he remembered uh, before he ran into it that uh, there was absolutely complete silence. Um Shiller Woods is four miles from O'Hare. <laughs> International <laughs> Airport. So, you know, there, the, the odds of him having any sort of silence uh, for any amount of time there is, is pretty odd. Um, you know, you'll also hear However, uh, the complete opposite this is that, yeah, there was a silence, but there's also this strange buzzing or ringing sound that sort of comes up. And um, this is really interesting to me because it's one of those things you see in literally every sort of paranormal health, by which I mean, you'll hear people report it at the start of near-death experiences, you'll hear people report it at the start of out-of-body experiences, people will, will report it at the start of psychedelic trips. People will report it at the beginning of uh, alien abduction. All these things uh, seem to be instigated by this sort of buzzing sound. Not all the time in Bigfoot lore, but enough that it is sort of a, a minor motif. Um, you know, in one instance, uh, there was a woman who was washing clothes. This is an older account, so I believe, in the 19th century. And she was washing her clothes, and uh, she heard some buzzing, and she looks up, and there's this. Harry hairy wild man. She averts her eyes because she's afraid he's going to hypnotize her. Because that's what a lot of the folklore talk about is that these wild men can actually hypnotize you as well. Uh, which ties into that sort of psychedelic trip altered state of consciousness um, line of thought. So it's just it's just an absolutely fascinating um, fascinating aspect. I don't entirely know what to make however having said that I did find an interesting corollary. Um, there is you mentioned uh, Al Barry in with Morehead. Uh, he wrote a great book called, <laughs> not originally titled, but it was called Bigfoot. <laughs> um, and in it he describes um, that one of their sites, it might have been a Sierra site actually, but at one of their sites he remembers hearing this ominous singing in the forest. The company some sort of rhythm uh, drumming and just chanting that it would sort of float up and he said uh, that it sort of started started low and guttural and then it sort of soared, and then it came back down again. And he compared it to a um, chanting that he heard at a monastery in Japan. Um, and uh, I think it was like 1970... Late, late 1970s, it like. um, Now, interestingly enough, um, the Ainu people in Japan um, until 1976, when the last practitioner died, actually would practice um, overtone singing, which, if anybody is not familiar with that, it's, it's like the 2 third singing that you see. Um, you know, where someone sings a pitch and then they use their vocal cords to tell them another pitch above it, um, which is sort of the same concept that you'd find, like, you know, an uh, Australian Aboriginal didgeridoo. You know, your, your lips are b- blowing a fundamental pitch, and above that you vocalize, and you actually get two pitches, right? That's really interesting to me for a couple of different reasons. Um, number one, first reason is that uh, you know, obviously, overtaking singing is a lot of times used in a spiritual context. But Australian Aborig- Aborigines will often accompany these altered states of consciousness into the dream time with a didgeridoo to sort of help um, orally a u r a l l y influence and enhance altered um, altered states of, of uh, consciousness, which you also see, um, you know, in the out-of-body research community, uh, people like Robert Monroe has put forth this idea of binaural beats, is, if anybody hasn't heard of it, which are, you know, frequencies that you can put in your ears to induce different states of consciousness. So there's your altered states of consciousness angle in there, but also uh, there is a story, explicitly enough, where uh, an individual uh, who was sort of a Bigfoot enthusiast, um, was out with, his, uh, out with his son looking for a uh, Sasquatch. Excuse me. And uh, he was around the Klamath River. And all of a sudden, he noticed his, son, his son's uh, eyes glazing over. And his son absolutely collapses. And he said that there was a sound coming out of the tree line, which he compared to a didgeridoo. So that inside the tree line, there was a dark, hairy figure about 15 yards away. He claims that he shot it and took his son to the hospital and said it was a bear attack. But again, here you have this idea of this, this sort of hypnotizing sound coming from Bigfoot, which ties in all the different processes. And surprisingly enough, um, my co-author, Timothy Renner, was actually interviewing a witness on-site in Pennsylvania. That he likes to do a lot of on-site interviews. One of the reasons that I like to show, Strange Familiar, so much. And uh, underneath the entire interview, he was only able to isolate a little bit of it. But under the entire interview, is this sound that is very much like human breathing? So <laughs> again, we have this this coincidence coming up again that is just absolutely wild. And again, I don't know what to make of make of it, but it definitely seems to have something to do with altered states of consciousness.
1: That is really fascinating because I am a bit familiar with yeah some of the uh, the out of body experiences and altered states and what people report uh, hearing right before and yeah it's... It, it, some people describe this ringing almost like an oncoming train, you know, that it just gets ra- gradually louder until it kind of peaks at, at one point. And it makes me wonder, does um, a witness ha- almost have to be like in tune to a certain frequency in order to not only see a Bigfoot, but, you know, experience some of the, the, these other phenomena that occur One of the things that you mentioned earlier was, uh, fairy lore. And I know that through pop culture, the, uh, the the whole idea of fairy has been more associated with like Tinkerbell. However, it seems like fairies are not these cute little creatures that are flying around. Bigfoot, I guess, would be a type of fairy. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Okay. Well, so before anybody turns off, (laughs) turns off the interview, wait, (laughs) wait, um, yeah, so uh, fairy lore has been greatly misunderstood over the past uh, several centuries, probably you know, since Shakespeare on is when it really started getting cute in Disney-fied. But uh, fairy folklore is a worldwide sort of belief that there are beings that like to abduct people um, that are intimately connected to the Earth, sometimes quite often actually associated with the human dead, um, and oftentimes they are short in stature, but not exclusively short in stature. Um, so you have this body of folklore that is actually quite chilling if anybody wants to look into actual fairy mythology. It's really interesting. It's all about taking babies and replacing them with fairy changelings and just being kind of capricious, I guess is the best word, but nasty when it ought to be. So people will say, well, what is this? You know, what do these of little fairies have to do with Bigfoot? But uh, time and again, you'll read in all these fairy stories, not only not fairy tales, right? Not fairy tales, fairy stories about fairies having the ability to change size and shape. Um to the extent that but, you know some fairies were explicitly large, like giants and trolls, which are sort of in that sort of say folk family. Share a lot of the same attributes, um, but you also have um, stories of basically big hairy fairies in the form of the wadwos which is sort of a European wild wildland exhibited a lot of fairy attributes, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, like and they had a lot of these magical attributes as well. Um, you know, moreover, if you look at some of the brownies, the Scottish brownie folklore and the analogs to that folklore, so we're talking about the Pecanderlin in Germany or the goblins of France, they were tiny, monkey-like fairy people. And sure enough, a lot of the contemporary sightings of fairies are not only, you know, what we think of as traditional leprechauns or people in, you know, little people in vests um, you know, uh, in, in, in jacket or whatever, but sometimes they're these little, short, hairy creatures that people say are fairies, and they definitely line up with um, tiny little versions of bigfoot. Um Not only that, but a lot of the attributes that you'll see Attributed to the Bigfoot are shared in fairy folklore, because they're also shared with alien folklore, and alien folklore also corresponds very closely to the, the fairy folklore. But one of the things that I find very really interesting, specifically, is how uh, a lot of times researchers will say that Bigfoot are fond of raiding horses' names. Now, you know, realistically, a lot of these rated horses' names are probably people's horses who did not get rushed before being put up the night, but... Nonetheless, people do say that Bigfoot braid horses' manes, and I've seen some pretty intricate, quote unquote, braids presented as evidence that I find interesting. Um, People don't see this happen a lot, but according to them, Bigfoot will sneak into a barn at night and braid horses' manes. There is one account that I found of a Russian researcher who found an Almas who he said walked into a a stable and braided horses' hair, Almas being, or Almas or Almasi being one of the, uh, Russian version of Bigfoot, um, but what's interesting about this regarding fairies is that you see that exact same behavior So, coming into your stable at night, and braiding horses' hair, attributed to witches and fairies in Europe. Um, the idea in Europe was that the fairies would actually braid horses' mane, a horses' manes as he of stirrups uh, to go out and ride around at night while while the human beings slept. So I find it really interesting that we attribute that same sort of the uh, same sort of observation, whether or not it's actually genuinely anomalous or not. People run into these odd things with their horses here. And, you know, a hundred years ago in Devon, <laughs> you would have said, oh, it's the fairies. And, you know, yesterday in Montana, you'd say, oh, it's, it's, I find it really interesting.
1: Yeah, that is it's really fascinating, and I recently have started kind of going down the uh, the path of uh, researching a little bit more about the, the fairy folklore, and it's funny because it, it also seems to be a, a bit of a worldwide phenomena. and I'll tell a, a quick story. Many years ago, when I was a child, uh, my family was vacationing down in Mexico, and the neighboring uh, family of where we were staying at was this lady who had uh, three sons, you know, and I think my my estimate is that their ages were probably like 7, 12, and, you know, 16 at the time. And I remember after a couple of days, uh, you know, we found ourselves having a, a talk with her and she began to tell us this this strange tale that she said that one night, she woke up because her youngest son was basically being kidnapped by these small little men. The way she described them, they sounded almost like elves. And she says that she had to fight them off to keep her child and that they would come around every so often. It's obviously a, a, a an unbelievable story. And the more i'm looking at this whole uh folklore of fairies and what you mentioned of uh wanting to take children and even young women you have to start to reconsider like you know what these people are experiencing could very well be true now in the case of bigfoot um it's funny. My same friend who told me this story about driving up to to the redwoods and and just hearing the silence. One of the the guys in the group that he was traveling with, who was local to that area, said that there was a a friend of his who chose to live away from the city. He didn't want to live in the city anymore, and uh, he was out there in the woods uh, one night, just kind of camping, and he fell asleep inside his sleeping bag. And he says that next thing he knows, he's being carried away. In his sleeping bag and he was you know a few feet off the ground and he, he felt like he was clearly being carried over someone very large over their shoulder he struggled a bit and he was dropped to the ground and he says when he unzipped his sleeping bag and got out he saw a very confused bigfoot standing in front of him and they both kind of darted in the opposite direction I find that really interesting because obviously it seems like Bigfoot. is quite an elusive creature, but there seems to be reports of these very, very close encounters with uh, humans. Correct?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's something that you'll see, especially in a lot of indigenous folklore. You know, we're using the term Bigfoot to sort of describe all all manner of wild men seen throughout the world. But uh, you know, focusing just here on the U.S., so you'll see in indigenous folklore all the time they would take women and they would take children. Um, either for breeding purposes or for food. Um, and, you know, that taking them for breeding purposes, I mean, that's the exact same thing that you see in fairy folklore and, you know, the alien abduction experience. It really is amazing the similarities between these things once you start digging uh, down a little bit deeper. And that's where a lot of my work tends to focus is on, you know, I don't think that, aliens are fairies or Bigfoot are fairies or that fairies are aliens or any, anything like that. I don't think that any one of these ways that we describe this phenomenon, I don't think any of those are accurate. I think they're all describing the same thing in their own sort of way and that we really don't have the tools to accurately describe it. It's, it's real and it's objectively not... It's real and it's objectively unnatural in some way, at least in terms of the way that we perceive the world. You know, I'm close to saying that it's not us, but I don't want to say that because it might be some sort of projection of us, right? Some sort of culpa or thought form or something like that, but there's something genuinely strange going on, and we, depending on where we are our culture, um, just find different ways of describing it, and, uh, you know, again, kidnapping is, is one of those things as well, um, where people, you know, sometimes it's missing 411-style activity, sometimes it's a way of coming to grips with uh, you know, as in a lot of the change in folklore of Ireland, a way of coming to grips with children with developmental disabilities. A lot of that folklore and I think. But I do think at the same time that some of it is uh, just trying to describe this weird interaction that we had with this other reality.
1: Speaking of interactions with a, another reality, there you write a, about a, a story that happened in 1857 that kind of goes further into this uh, those fairy folklore similarities, which involves a, a boy being kidnapped and taken underground. Can you just tell us that story really quick and just further expand on these similarities of the fairy folklore?
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I absolutely adore this story. Um, it's uh, it's from the uh, June ninth, eighteen fifty seven. Issue of Salem, Oregon's Weekly Oregon Statesman. It's a story about um, this boy who was out looking for livestock uh, with an older gentleman, and they were camping in the forest, and they heard this cry in the woods. And the boy woke up that night and he saw a large, hairy man about 12 or 15 feet tall, whose eyes were glowing, quote unquote, like liquid balls of fire. And it grabbed the boy and ran away into the forest to a trap door and it opens up this trapdoor in the forest and climbs down a ladder into the subtra- subterranean layer. Inside, the boy sees this room that's illuminated with a peculiar phosphorescent light, and above it, it all seems to be composed of, like, seashells of, of every conceivable shape and color, he said. And he could hear music coming from somewhere else. And according to the story, the creature ended up bringing back uh, a young lady who was, you know, absolutely beautiful, and she hands him a card, like a business card, and it says, um, boy, depart hence forthwith, or remain and be devoured, and he ends up escaping uh, while the beast is sleeping. Um, what I love about that story is, you know, it sounds like a pink flag, right? I mean, it's, it's Oregon, <laughs> it's large, hairy man with these glowing eyes, but everything else about the story is, is straight out of fairy lore. I mean, that sort of Weird lighting is just like the dim lighting of fairyland. Um, you could draw some comparisons to the sort of underground dome space that people see in DMT trips um, and the seashells. But that detail about the girl who comes and warns him to leave is—you find that time and time again the stories of people who are kidnapped by fairies in you know, Ireland or the or, you know, British Isles. Or people who you know stumble into a fairy party and they'll see someone who walks up to them. And it's a it's a young girl who died last year, and she it, she she tells him to not drink any food, to not drink any drink or eat any food, or else they will be trapped with the fairies forever, like she is. It's an exact comparison there. Um, and so I, I just absolutely, I absolutely love that story.
1: It was really fascinating to read, absolutely, and. uh, Just to kind of make one further connection here, you just mentioned DMT. And, you know, for the folks at home, uh, definitely, if you don't know about that, give it a Google search, uh, dimethyltryptamine. It's very fascinating. Um, Many years ago, when I first started doing this show, I interviewed someone who was uh, a self-taught shaman, if you will. And uh, he was fairly young, but, you know, he seemed to have a really good handle on a lot of uh, these uh, topics. And one of the things that he described to me was uh, we were actually talking about fairies and just other dimensions. And he mentioned that one time through uh, meditation, enter this fairy realm. And when you mentioned EMT, it reminds me of this is because the way he was describing this process of meditating and what happened sounded very similar to what happens during a, a psychedelic trip. And I know that talking to people like Dr. Rick Strassman, he believes that you can achieve these same altered states that you enter with DMT through meditation. So he was telling me that he he was in this very realm, but that these... Creatures that he encountered were surprised to see him there and they kind of kicked him out right away. It was a totally uh, strange uh, tale. So I almost have to flirt with the idea that do we have to be like in tune to be able to see with, uh, you know, I don't want to get too mystical here, but almost to see with like our third eye and see some of these creatures like Bigfoot or aliens or fairies, which in your book, you do an excellent job at showing the similarities and showing how there can be some type of connection between all of these.
0: I mean, yeah, that's sort of the frustrating thing is because I want to see these things too, but you you keep on running into stuff like, Oh, you don't see fairies with your eyes. You see them with your heart. It's like, okay, that's great. (laughs) What does that mean? You know? Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I'm convinced that the altered state of consciousness angle has something to do. with You know, you're right. Uh, you can achieve it by um, a lot of different ways. You can achieve it through you know, psychedelic infusions, let's say that's a better word to put it there, but of putting it you know, through certain substances. You can achieve it through meditation. You know, uh, substances are quick, but you're unprepared for it. Meditation is a lot slower, but you tend to arise much more prepared for what happens to you. I think some people are just born with it. I think other people are sort of forced into it by trauma or by dissociation. You know, And I think that's why we see the same sort of imagery popping up in near-death experiences. But I, I do think that there's something, you know, so much of this paranormal stuff comes back to the witness. It comes back to the person um, and what they've that going on in their lives. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've talked to people who were talking about uh a UFO that we had, and I said, well, what was going on in your life? They're like, well, it's the, you know, it was in the middle of a divorce, and, you yeah, know, we were renovating the house at the same time, or something like that, you know. Right. There's always this transitional liminal aspect to a lot of these things, and uh, I think that something about being in that state of mind um, is really conducive to these phenomena. But, yeah, I'm just, I'm always thrilled to explore where the uh, Venn diagram overlaps on a lot of these phenomena. and Man, you know, Bigfoot sits at the middle of a lot of it, that's for sure. (laughs) You can draw comparisons, as we do in the book, to uh, Bigfoot and ghosts, Bigfoot and, uh, you know, UFOs, Bigfoot and fairies, Bigfoot and, um, witches, Bigfoot and these archetypal women in white. I mean, it's just, it really is the uh, the gift that keeps on giving.
1: One of the things that caught my attention was that uh, it seems a lot of this phenomena is a bit localized. Like, for example, in the Pennsylvania area or like here in California up in the Redwoods and, you know, Washington State. And when I was reading your book, there was a lot of instances where if the listeners are familiar with Skinwalker Ranch, I mean, this is a pretty fascinating spot where you see lights, you see Bigfoot type creatures, you find uh, mutilated creatures cattle there's a story about a family that moved there that within a, a few days i believe they saw this large black wolf just kind of walking through the field and it makes me wonder in fairy folklore you hear a lot about enchanted forests and uh it makes me wonder if maybe this phenomena if there are basically hot spots in different parts of the world where you know these things happen with more Uh, frequency have you found that in your research
0: oh absolutely i mean i I think that these things can happen anywhere but there are certainly some places where they are more likely to happen um and you know as to why we could speculate all day you know some people will say oh it has to do with ley lines or it has to do with you know burial grounds or this or that or the other um but uh I kind of wonder if it's not all of the above and sometimes other things and, you know, <laughs> it's, it's almost like there's a, uh, a critical threshold that has to be reached. And if you reach that by having a huge amount of quartz deposits in the ground, then congratulations, your area is paranormal. If you reach that by, like, having, like, some quartz and some burials in the ground and some running water underneath the ground or whatever, you know, people... Put forth all sorts of different ideas and things with paranormal attractors. Um, then congratulations, you have a paranormal area. Uh, so I think it might be a combination of factors, um, and not just me one thing. But yeah, I, I do think that they're all there. I mean, if you look at the place like where Timothy lives, Sanctuário you know, Central. I mean, uh, you know, you've got I think just in like within thirty miles of where he lives, you've got front sightings and UFO landings and Bigfoot encounters and haunted houses and you know um these things called albatwitches which are like two little little hairy creatures um as well you've got all these different things in one area and that sort of was the inspiration for one of timothy's essays in the book um which is uh the company they keep which is i said a while back i said then you have to look at the companies that these things keep you know i think it's i think it's not <laughs> at all coincidental that people see ufos over a lot and uh Alistair Curley built his Alexand house on the shores of Loch North, you know, where people see the Loch Ness monster. I mean it, it, it's just coincidental, right? I mean I think that you get to me these happen- things happening in one place and you gotta say, Okay, yeah, it's um these things do seem to be related and they do seem to be attracted to certain facts.
1: One of the things that I I found interesting, uh, reading your book was that there was an instance, there's a story in, in your book that you included. About someone having a a Bigfoot encounter and uh, they began to uh, call out the name of Jesus and and this creature went away. And I'll be honest, it's not the first time I've heard of something like that in uh, alien encounters. I've read quite a few cases where people have, uh, uh, you know, called out to Jesus for help and the encounter will end. Obviously, you know, getting into religion is a tricky area when talking about all of these things. But the obvious question is, are these things evil in some way? And is that the reason why they uh, behave in this manner when a witness will uh, call out the name of Christ, for example?
0: That's a great question. Um, And it's a needle that I constantly find myself having to thread, you know, Um, because, you know, I am a Christian myself. Um, And... At the same time, I I get sort of uh, frustrated with this idea that everything has to be good or evil, you know. Uh, I think that there are a lot of freelancers <laughs> in the middle um, sometimes. Um, I think that a lot of these things are predisposed to have negative consequences in your life. Um, you know, I think that uh, some people that I know have said about the spirit world, um, it's a lot like you know, getting into the void in the ocean, you know. It's, a shark is going to shark, you know, a shark might bite you or a shark might end up killing you from a bite. It doesn't mean that it's evil. It's just, you know, it's just in its nature. Um, similarly, you know, you might run into sharks that are better disposition <laughs> or sharks that run away. Um, but you're right. I mean, this is something that, the that all these communities have to address and confront of the fact that people can pray and get out of supernatural encounters. Um, and not just not just Christianity, Christianity um, although that's probably the best documented. But I've seen stories of atheists who suddenly start praying um, and are able to uh, dispel what's going on around them. I found an instance uh, of a of Muslim gentleman who believed that he was being attacked by jinn, which are sort of a you know, fairy analogues, kind of like feel like scenarios as well. But he was praying to Muhammad and. Uh, is able to to, you know, to repel the jet, and you find it in bigfoot stories, um, and of course you certainly find it in as well and very folklore. So, you yeah, know, I don't know what that means. Um, I have some friends who think that it doesn't necessarily indicate the supremacy of one religion over another one. That it just means that uh, the intention behind what you're doing is what counts. Um, you know, I'm I'm certainly open to that idea. I kind of remain. <laughs> I I remain agnostic (laughs) to what that means, Um, but it is definitely something that happens. So, you know, if you're ever in a scenario, um, you can pray and sometimes get uh, the results of of being brought out of that scenario.
1: I think one of the the best explanations uh, for this, or at least one of them that kind of coincides with what you said, that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be evil. Like, you know, we don't have to see things as good or evil. I remember someone was saying in regards to uh, alien abduction experiences is that these entities are respectful. And when they see a, a person doing that, it's just a form of respect of like, okay, you clearly don't want to be here, so we will leave. Right. So, yeah, I think that in order for a lot of these things to make sense and not to be clouded by any bias, we should hold off the judgment of are we dealing with good or evil? Uh, but I do agree that intention plays a big role in, in a lot of these type of experiences. Your book, uh, Where the Footprints End, it's actually uh, not a standalone book. It's, this is actually Volume 1. There's a Volume 2 out there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you cover on that book?
0: Well, Volume 1 and Volume 2 are roughly divided into folklore and evidence. So that's a bit of a misnomer because there's a good deal of evidence in Volume 1 and it's a good deal of folklore in Volume 2. Um, volume 1 does talk about sort of the things that we've been talking about a bit, so through the lens of witchcraft or folklore with fairies, poltergeists, um, the alien contact experience, gift offerings, ghosts, and uh, some certain archetypes involving women and white. Volume 2 is uh, evidence because it's a little bit more experiential in terms of of uh, what it focuses on. So in Volume 2, we have Mystery Lights, which we separate from UFOs. But UFOs. <laughs> so yeah, we have a chapter on alien abductions, a chapter on mystery lights, and a chapter on UFOs, which we sort of did because uh, topics overlap so much. So Volume 2 is Mystery Lights, UFOs, Vocalizations, because a lot of these vocalizations are just uncanny in the way that they mimic other sounds. Um, I would say unnatural <laughs> in the way they mimic other sounds. Um, altered states of consciousness, hex signs, Toes, you know, the different numbers of toes that we were just talking about, trackways that are anomalous, so trackways that just in Bigfoot, you know, Bigfoot uh, phasing through material, Bigfoot gliding, Bigfoot levitating and <laughs> flying away, one-legged trackways, portals and stuff like that, like that's where that all falls there. Um, disappearing evidence, which is a chapter by my co-author, Timothy, about how that evidence just always seems to disappear. Um, the trickster phenomena and then two case studies uh, that exemplify a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, sort of all in one or two cases.
1: That sounds really, really wild. I look forward to reading that next, and hopefully uh, you can come back on the show and we can discuss, because I- I'll tell you, I know that in, in your uh, volume one of uh, where the footprints end, you don't want to compare your book necessarily to uh, Jack Vallee's Passport to Magonia, but I kid you not, I got the same vibe reading your book in the sense that we can't limit ourselves to one theory when we don't have an answer to what's going on. And I think that it's very important to look at all of this with an open mind uh, to try and really understand or attempt to begin to understand what's happening and what people are seeing and experiencing. And what I loved about your book was that it made me, and, and I know I say this a lot when I read these type of books, but I mean it, it just makes me realize how strange and a wonderful place the world is that we live in.
0: No, I, I completely agree. And uh, that's very kind of you to say, and I don't think we never ever really intended for it to have that sort of delay in shape, but uh, it, it kind of took that on, I think. And uh, if we can just uh, encourage the conversation in this direction, Again, as we were talking about a little bit before we started, um, even if it's the wrong direction, at least it's a different direction for a while, and we can see what its shortcomings are or maybe what its strengths are.
1: Absolutely. Where can people get your books, uh, Josh?
0: Uh, If you go to my website, joshuacutching.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-T-C-H-I-N.com, I I have links to all my books, including these two. They are exclusively available on Amazon because they are printed through Amazon. You can go to Amazon.com and The Footprints, and you'll find volumes one and two there. But if you can order them from, you know, a brick and mortar traditional bookstore, that'd be great because I do love myself bookstores and I love to see them.
1: Thanks so much, Josh, for uh, being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. This has been a, a great deal of fun and uh, just uh, mind opening, mind expanding. And I definitely uh, wish you luck in all your future research.
0: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: That was Josh Kutchin, author of this uh, really amazing book, Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 1. I definitely uh, encourage you guys to go grab a copy of this book. Uh, You won't be able to put it down. It was an amazing experience to be able to submerge yourself in this world and, and just explore the possibilities. I can't wait to start. Their second book, Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 2. Like I mentioned there towards the end, these two books make the whole work. Josh and his co-author Timothy did a great job in Volume 1. Can't wait to see what they did in Volume 2. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Uh, I know I did. Uh, We definitely covered a lot. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Uh, If you have any questions, we'll have uh, Josh back here in the near future, and uh, I'd be happy to pass those along. If you're catching this show on YouTube, uh, don't forget to uh, click the subscribe button, hit the bell for notifications, and uh, stay up to date with all our interviews. We got some other uh, cool stuff coming down the pipe here. Also, don't forget to check out the website, WOTRradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at W-O-T-R Radio. And of course, you can go like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash West of the Rockies. That being said, take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then, bye-bye.
0: West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM Los Angeles.